to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, or any of the radio shows I co-host with pet experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Paul Licken Chicken, Steak Frites, and Marbella Paella are intended for finicky felines and fussy little dogs, but because all their cans and pouches of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands are made in a human food facility. It means every ingredient is good enough for people to eat. I have a wonderful lineup of guests today. Such a, a very different, diverse group of people. All of them love dogs in their own way. Nobody probably quite as much as Peter Lee from Humane Society International, who's going to tell us about the horrible dog meat festival in northern China. I then have a, a most touching young man, Owen, from the book Hatchy and Little Bee. This little boy, I'll tell you a bit about him before I speak to him, had a, has a, a lifelong disability. He's just a little chap and found a dog who had a life-threatening accident. And together they have really made some beautiful music together. And then I have Sarah Meyer Peterson, who is a, a professor of vet techs in an accredited program in Florida to learn a little bit about what is a vet tech and maybe you want to become one. Who knows? But I'm going to start by welcoming Peter Lee back to Dog Talk. Peter, your work for Humane Society International is so brave and tireless. And I just want to say from all of us, thank you so much for standing up for the animals around the world who really need your help. Your recent trip to Yulin in northern China is one that you've made before. Will you tell us a little about the dog meat festival and the horrors of it? Uh, thank you for having me on the uh, radio. Uh, actually, just a small correction. Yilin is in southwest China's Guangxi Zhuang Autonomous Region. Uh, yes, I was there uh, for four days, including the day uh, when the uh, Dog Meat Festival was, you know, uh, started, uh, which was June the 21st. Uh, the so-called Yilin Dog Meat Festival was, in fact, an event created by the city's dog meat traders, dog meat restaurant owners, and also at that time in 2009 uh, by the government, you know, tourism bureau. Wow. So, yeah. So it was not, uh, you know, so-called traditional, you know, right. festival. Yeah. It was created by the businesses. So it's basically a commercial enterprise, and the and the government of China was so, let's say, ignorant of what the universal feeling would be about having a festival celebrating the murder of dogs to eat, that they thought this would be a great way to, to bring tourists to the area? Yeah, for the local authorities, I would say, you know, officials in Yulin. Now, let's say, you know, Yulin is a city uh, which uh, is about a two-hour drive from the uh, provincial capital, and it is inland, uh, inland city, uh, kind of, you know, far from the most developed, you know, coastal right. areas of uh, the country. So I would say, yes, you know, local officials were at that time uh, quite ignorant of the international and also, you know, domestic reactions to, you know, 
you know, mass, mass dog slaughtering. Yes, because in fact, in China, there has been an uprising of citizens against the whole idea of transporting dogs long distances in terrible conditions, many of them dying along the way, and then being slaughtered and butchered, uh, sometimes alive or always alive, I guess you'll tell us, and then blood running in the streets and people all having this great festival to eat the dog meat. Let, before we go on, Peter, the reason I had thought it was northern China, it was my error, was because my understanding was that historically the those in the northern part of China that maybe the colder part feel that dog meat is very warming. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Actually, you know, Yulin, you know, dog meat festival, which falls on the, uh, you know, summer solstice day, which is June 21st. Oh, I see. Was believed to be the last day, last day of the uh, the time of the year that you can still eat dog after you know, after June the twenty third would be too hot to eat the dog. Yes, still they believe that eating dog in winter time, colder days, is better for your body. Uh, yes, but you know, Yunnan is in southwest China, but in northeast China, the Jilin province, you know, there is a, another location where dog eating is also very concentrated, but most mostly also for winter times. So, so it's sort of, in a sense, the way uh, the Western world might look at oysters. You don't eat oysters in hot months, of course, because of the safety of the oysters, whether they're unsafe for us to eat. But in this case, it's whether or not this particular food product is good for the human or not. How have you seen a change between 2009 and 2014 locally or internationally to this so-called festival in which butchering dogs, many of whom not only look like pet dogs in the pictures that I've seen on hsus.org, but you have sent me a picture which will be on my Facebook page and will be uh, uh, visible along with the podcast of this show of one of these little dogs who you brought home as a family pet and you brought another one home and someone on the board of directors of the Humane Society of the United States has adopted that dog. This looks like a dog that could be anybody's golden retriever. Yes. Uh, you know, the dog eating in Yulin, and in fact, in many parts of China, uh, has become a huge problem, you know, to Chinese, you know, public, because, you know, for, you know, several reasons. First is, you know, a lot of these dogs are stolen, you know, household pets. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, and you, if you see the dogs, you know, wearing collars, wearing jackets, you wonder how could, you know, you know, meat dog farms, you know, sell dogs wearing jackets. That's just unbelievable. And that's the first one. And second one, a lot of dogs had a huge problem, you know, health problem. I was in one of the live dog markets where I, I rescued these two puppies. You know, many of those dogs had a serious skin problem. Yes. You know, I wonder if these dogs are safe as a food. So that's second problem. Uh, that Chinese public, you know, find it hugely offensive for Yulin to have this, you know, massive dog slaughter, you know, festival. Now, the third problem is that, you know, we know that China has, you know, uh, you know, food safety regulations regarding, you know, beef or pork and chicken and other, you know, animal products. But there is no, you know, you know, safety, you know, uh, you know, regulation regarding dog meat. So all these dogs, you know, slaughtered when they are sick and also having, you know, skin problem. So that's a huge, you know, food safety, you know, problem. And also the way these dogs are slaughtered, they're often slaughtered in front of other dogs. 
creating, you know, horror to the other live dogs. We saw some pictures, images, you know, where dogs witnessing other dogs slaughtered in front of them. They were totally terrorized. And these conditions of the slaughterhouses was just unbelievable, you know, unbelievable. Do they slaughter them in public, Peter, in front of everybody, or it's done in a slaughterhouse? Now, in the past, between 2009 and 2012, they slaughtered dogs in public. In That's what I thought, right yeah. in the marketplace. And how in would the they market. do it? They would slit their throat? They would, uh, you know, they would blanch them first and, uh, yeah, and uh, cut off the uh, throat. And then they would, of course, you know, uh, you know, skin them. Oh, no, sorry, the, uh, uh, you know, remove the hair and then, you know, disembowel them. Wow. Cut into pieces. Now, this was between 2009 and 2012. Now, since last year, because, uh, you know, all the crying opposition from around the world and from inside China, so they, you know, required, or local authorities required that slaughter, you know, be done, you know, out of, you know, public view. Yes. So this year, I personally went into a slaughterhouse in the small hours of the day at about four o'clock in the morning. So we witnessed, you know, slaughter, uh, uh, you know, operation from distance. So this is used the same method, the blinds in the dogs, you know, uh, you know, uh, remove the hair and disembowel the dog, but all in front of other dogs. So the other dogs were terrorized. It's obviously a horrendous situation. And then, of course, in terms of public health, it's it's ironic that sometimes the issues that we want to see viewed in America or around the world on the basis of humane treatment and decency, sometimes the better the better result can come by going after the health issue. Oh, it's unsafe or unhealthy to eat that dog meat because the dogs are sick or they haven't been proven that they're well. And obviously there's no refrigeration, so God knows what contamination happens even during the slaughtering process. But it's sometimes it's that way that the laws can be changed or the habits can be changed rather than for the reason that dogs are not an appropriate food. Of yeah, course, we, we, have, we have these species issues across a lot of lines. I mean, there's a lot of veg- vegetarians think that cows and chickens and lambs shouldn't be food either. But at least in our world, companion animals, especially the fact that these are stolen dogs, these are dogs that are that are companion dogs. They're not factory farmed. No one really does. I mean, that's what a puppy mill is in America, right? Those are factory farmed dogs. But the ones in China are ones of opportunity. They've they've picked them up wherever they can. Yeah, a lot. You know, they even you know steal. You know, they even poison other people's dogs so that they can you know uh, steal the dogs. Now, there is one latest report in uh, 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 another province in China that a family, you know, eating hot pot of, uh, you know, dog meat, and the, fam- the entire family got poisoned. Of course. So the dog must have been, you know, poisoned by yes. the dog, you know, thief. That's caused the huge, you know, uh, public safety issue. And strangely enough, that may be one of the things that can be used by a humane organization to stop a practice because you're never going to be able to appeal to another culture with our attitudes. I mean, you are Chinese of de- you're of Chinese descent yourself, yes? Yes. So I'm sure for you this is a source of national 
embarrassment as it is for so many people living in China that their country is seen as doing this barbaric and pointless act. There is other food that can be eaten, not other people's pets. Yeah, that's why there are so many, you know, protests and the protesters from across the China, they're all Chinese, you know, converge in Yilin. Now they want to tell the world that Yilin, you know, dog meat festival was not, that did not represent, you know, China. That's why these people, the Chinese, you know, you know, were there, you know, protesting. They want to tell the the outside world yes. that we represent, you know, uh, China. Union does not represent China. Well, you're unfortunately China is a country where, regardless of what the food product is, or what the vitamin mix or the mineral mix is, it is viewed and has been proven over and over to not have food safety rules in general. I mean, their own people, their own babies have been poisoned by doctored infant formula that seems to have no uh, oversight to how it's created. These chicken jerky treats that keep coming into America and clearly are poisonous, and yet no one can quite prove how and no one can quite stop them from doing it. it I guess the whole issue of food safety is one that China's growing so quickly. And as you said, the commercial uh, interests are so powerful and so uh, and so aggressive and so greedy that the whole idea of food safety is kind of lacking anyway, right? Yeah, but this is this is why the Chinese activists has been you know have been you know trying to you know send the message that uh, you know understanding that the Chinese authorities are under tremendous pressure to improve the food safety you know uh, right uh, you know record. That's why the Chinese activists instead of you know telling you know the authorities that the dogs and the cats are companion animals, they are friends of the people. Right. They they say you know dog meat is not safe. We right. already have a you know huge food safety problem. Why can't we? Why can? Why don't we? You know, take measures to, against dog meat because this is another source of you know right. food safety right, so, problems. So, so, so the dog meat trade, the the people who who benefit from it, the dog meat butchers and the dog meat uh, sellers of the live animals. Uh, are they, are they very powerful, Peter? Are there very many of them? How do they have? How do they wield this power? As you say, this is not a tradition that's gone on in China for four thousand years. If that were the case, it would be easier to understand. It would still be really sad. But being a brand new commercial enterprise, where do they get their power? I don't think that that uh, you know, dark uh, meat trade, you know, constitutes a significant part of the local economy. I don't think so. Uh, you know, but we have to understand this. You know, China is a huge country. Yes. And especially in, in Guangxi area, you know, there is a voice, you know, among the small number of people uh, saying that uh, this is what we eat, you know. Right. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, it's part of our, you know, uh, you know uh, folk, folk diet. Right. Uh, so they, you know, are, are doing this mostly for, you know, uh, profit. But uh, I would say... One thing important to notice that even though they are saying that this is the tradition, this is a local diet, and but the authorities are also paying attention to the protest, to the concerns raised by you know animal people uh, around China. That's why they have taken the authorities have taken you know measures to check on 
you know, the, uh, you know, uh, drug needed uh, traders, you know, uh, operations, especially during the uh, uh, so-called drug meat festival. Because uh, if there was not a festival, then you wouldn't have so many dogs all being stolen at the same time and all being trucked at the same time, because a great deal of this, of the pain and suffering is not just being slaughtered or watching your fellow dog being slaughtered, but it's getting you from wherever you were found or taken or stolen to the festival, and apparently they're crammed, I don't know, dozens or hundreds in a truck, and they suffocate and, and, and die on the way there. Yes, yes. You know, to in, in order to supply for the, uh, you know, dog music festival, they have to source, you know, dogs from as far as the provinces right. in, in central China, which can be, you know, 500 miles away, you know, uh, from the, the city. So I think that that it's the festival itself that's the problem. We can't say to people in a cultural area, you can't, you shouldn't eat dog meat because they rightly can say, but this is our habit, this is our custom. But in, in small rural areas, whether it's Italy or China, if people eat pork, for example, they raise a pig in the backyard and they raise the pig and they feed the pig themselves and they take it to a butcher or slaughter it themselves and that's their meat for the whole year. They have yeah. prosciutto and they have one thing and another. If the people in this Yulin province want to eat dog, then they should provide their own dogs and do it in some, I don't know, historic cultural way of raising the dog to eat. I mean, it's horrible to us, but it, that's the facts of their life. Rather than depending on this influx of dogs who are there under horrible situations and circumstances and a lot of heartbreak with whoever lost them. I mean, in America, people say, Oh, be careful, you know, don't leave your dog in the car. It might get stolen. Mm -hmm. And I always think, well, no one really wants to steal your Labrador retriever. Well, maybe they do, but they're, at least they're not going to eat them. You know, they want them for a pet. So I think to, to live in a country where people, now that owning dogs has become part of the Chinese culture, and there's been resistance from authorities, but it is part of the culture. People recognize the joy of having a companion animal. I would think that they would have a lot to say as well about the danger to their own dogs of yes. this festival without the festival there's no there's no trade there's no traffic to all yeah. go at once that's why people say we are not you know questioning your eating habit we are questioning the way that the yes. large number of dogs are you know transported over that's great right. distance and also slaughtered you know, brutally yes so I, I really appreciate your going there. These must be images that are burned into your retinas and burned into your brain. And I'm sorry that you have to go through it for all of us. But being a witness to this horror is the beginning of being able to shine light on it and enlighten the people there. And the, whether it's the government or the people putting it together to understand this is not a happy occasion. It's not a festival. It's a horror show. So I, what have you named your lovely little puppy? Uh, we, we call him uh, Corby. Corby. C-O-L-B-Y. Colby. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's it must really break your heart to see little Colby growing up and, and becoming a member of your family and know that by the luck of, of fate, Colby got saved and all those hundreds and hundreds of other dogs got slaughtered. It must be a kind of a, a bittersweet reminder to you when, when you see Colby's little face every day. Thank you for, for making a difference in the lives of the two dogs you brought back, Peter. And I'm sure that over time, you will help change this terrible event on the summer solstice. It's not a day of celebration. It is a day of shame. So thank you so much for the work you do for Humane Society International and in particular for being there at this uh, terrible day. Thank you so much. 
Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, Peter. You take care. Keep up your good work. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm gonna, we're going to go to a quick break. But before we do, I just want to tell you a little bit about Owen. He's a British boy who is just seven, I believe. He might be coming eight. And he was born with a, a very, very rare genetic disorder. I think about 30 people in the world have it. And this book, Hachi and Little Bee, is required reading to read a little something about good news coming out of bad. His family already had a pet dog. His This disability that he has, all of his muscles are in tension all the time. He's very small for his age, but all of his muscles are spasming all the time. He's been in pain for most of his young life. He's had many surgeries, various kinds of medications that he takes. He's in a very special motorized wheelchair that this wonderful dog and he helped raise the money for. And they even wound up at the biggest dog show in England, Crufts, along with several other cases of hero dogs. And and Owen, to his great amazement and his family's amazement, they, they were the ones chosen as the great pair, the great duo. The dog, which I don't I'm not going to talk about on the interview is an Anatolian shepherd, a magnificent large dog that was tied to the railway track in England so that a train could run over it. And it severed, almost severed his back leg and his tail. And he was only five or six months old. And by the good grace of two good Samaritans, he was rescued and saved and gotten to a vet. And it was unclear whether he would live. This leg had to be fully amputated, and his tail was so short that there was infection and problems. And being a tripod, a three-legged dog for such a large breed dog, still a growing puppy, was going to be a problem. But when Owen's mom and dad saw this dog on the Internet, they just felt this was the right dog for their little boy. And it has changed his outlook on the world. And this dog is an ambassador for, for many things, at the very least of which is that the courage of a dog and of his fortitude in life has given this little boy courage to go, to come out of a shell and come out of, of feeling like a freak and feeling really proud of himself and really proud of his dog. So I really look forward to talking to him after this quick break. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance Supplements since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Putting the powder in the food of young dogs and cats can help prevent joint problems from developing, and the glucosamine, MSM, and other anti-inflammatory ingredients can ease pain and lameness in older animals. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. I am back with a most extraordinary book that is a most extraordinary story about a most amazing little boy and a very, very big dog. The name of the book is Hachi and Little Bee, the inspiring true story of one boy and his dog, and inspiring it is. We're going to talk to Owen, who is Little Bee. He's come out from behind the name Little Bee and been his own real self now, now that he's become a huge celebrity, actually, in England. He won a major award at the Crufts Dog Show for having the best lifetime friend in his dog. And so his dad, Will, and I will sort of set the scene for how Hachi came into Owen's life and why it was, I guess, one of the most dramatic transformations I've ever heard of, of a boy and a dog, or what a dog can do for somebody with a, with a challenge and a disability in his life. Will, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here from England. Thank you for having us. Well, I, I saw the video online. 
this beautiful book, beautifully written, beautifully produced, marvelous photos. But first I saw the video that I know millions of people have now looked at on YouTube of your little boy coming into the center arena in the dramatic lighting of, of which we have in America at the Westminster Dog Show. And there you have it at Crufts, the moment when the champions are crowned. And there's your little boy driving in, in in his fantastic wheelchair, which the book explains how you were able to get that with the kindness and donations of strangers. And this gigantic Anatolian shepherd who has three legs and no tail because of a horror that happened to him when he was only a few months old himself. That You and, and your wife, were his stepmom, were, were there in the center arena. How did you keep from crying? That's what I want. I was crying watching it. Um because I, we didn't expect to win. Um, there was some other fantastic dogs and their owners there, and um, especially the dog which they um, someone got from Afghanistan, um, who saved soldiers' lives. You know, wasn't even a trained dog, and so we never expected to to win. And so I think because we didn't know we were going to win, it was more of a shock. So. There was, <laughs> yeah. So much time for any emotion. Um, the emotion came later that evening when we were in the bar and Owen's being surrounded by various people congratulating him. And it was like the whole, it was just dawned on us, you know, that evening how big it really was. I, I hear Owen in the background and, and I just want to say, Owen, you are such a cool guy. You're just a really cool guy. Thank you so much. You're, you're wonderful. I, and, you know, you, you've done so much, not just to help people recognize the importance of a big buddy like Hachi, but to make grown-ups and children and the people taking care of animals realize that every animal has a special person waiting for them. And I guess you and Hachi were waiting for each other, weren't you? Um, yeah. I mean, you had already a dog at home, and you have this very rare, rare <clears throat> medical condition where your muscles are all very tight, and it makes it, made it very hard to walk, and you were very shy and self-conscious, and you hated people staring at you. And, you. and what about your dog, Little Pixel? Why do you think that that wasn't such a great, um, like, love affair like you had with Hachi? Do you, can you figure out why? I really can't figure out why that one. That's right. I mean, that's a hard question because the miracle is that your stepmom and your dad saw Hachi online and he had his leg had been run over by a train and his tail. He'd sort of been left there. And you didn't even know they were bringing this dog back that was twice as big as you were. Do you remember what it was like the first morning when you woke up and this giant dog was there ready to lick your face? Um, I wouldn't say lick your face. But it was like two eyes combining together and they understand what Hatchy's been through and Hatchy knows what I've been through. That's beautiful. You said that so perfectly. Two eyes meeting together. And the Anatolian Shepherd can sometimes be a kind of a fierce dog, but he's never been anything but super gentle with you and your school chums and people you meet out on walks. What was it like for you to go out in your wheelchair with him when you used to hate to go out in public because people would look at you and you were so uncomfortable about that. Like you didn't want people to be staring at you. And now you just can't wait to tell them about Hachi. Do you think that people need to look at other people that have challenges and disabilities? Do you think that you're going to help people to see them differently? 
Yes. I think you are, because in the book it talks about when you watch the Special Olympics and how cool you thought that was. Do you think you could ever, when you're older, be in the Special Olympics in some way? I would, but no. But no? But why not? You don't know. How old are you now, Owen? You're still a very young man. Yeah. You're, are you seven or are you eight? Um, eight this year, coming up nine. Wow. So that's pretty cool, but you still got a long way till you could be in the Olympics anyway, right? I mean, you have to be kind of like a grown-up or something. Um, yeah. You've been able to take Hachi to school. You, you've got to a school now that you weren't sure what it would be like because when you first went, you didn't know anybody. How, how much do your friends in school, how much are they interested in Hachi? Is he like a big deal to them the way he is to you? Um. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <clears throat> he is, right? Because, I mean, in England, you've become quite a, a well-known person for having gone out and celebrated this fantastic dog who celebrates you, too. I mean, you just, you guys are are just best friends for life, right? Um, I would not say for life. <clears throat> Why not I'll for life? Say forever. Forever and ever. Amen. Exactly. Now, when you when he first came, I don't know if you remember this because it was a, a, probably about a year ago, I guess, or a bit more. He was having some medical troubles with his the stump where his leg had been and the stump where his tail had been. And seeing what he went through medically and the medicines he had to take, did that really help you look at your your challenges and and the medicines you have to take and the treatments you have to go through? Did it really help you to see that he was so brave and so you needed to be brave? Yeah. And so don't you think it'd be great if dogs like Hachi could spend more time around kids that are in hospitals and in medical situations? It seemed like it turned you into a different boy. Like the real Owen came out of his shell and you're just this wonderful, bright, talkative, enthusiastic guy that you just have a different outlook on life, don't you? I mean, don't you think of the world a different way now that Hachi is your partner? Um... Yeah. You do, right? I mean, at least in the book, I really got the impression that everybody saw you just blossom like a flower. What kind of things do you and Hachi do together? You lie around a lot together. He's very good as a large lounging pillow, isn't he? I yeah. mean, he's good to lean against. Um, does he lean against you much, or is, or is he careful with you, or does he not need to be careful with you? He is careful with me. And I'm careful with him, and he's careful with me. So and it, I do line him like a, um, like a big giant pillow. Yeah, that's what I thought. He is like this huge furry pillow. Um, what about his leg and getting around on three legs? Um, was that something that worried you in the beginning, or did you just expect him to be okay with it? I was a little bit worried to start with, then... I got really um not worried. And do you then, think that did they think that helped you too? Because you were very worried about walking yourself. It's extremely hard for you to walk because your muscles are so tight. But now, do you think seeing him overcome his difficulties because he's a gigantic dog? Gosh, Owen, I think he's the biggest dog I've ever seen. So having only three legs is a little harder on him. Did it give you more encouragement to try to walk? Because I think. You hadn't even had the the ability or the courage to try it, and now is that what you want to do more than anything is walk? Um, 
Yeah. So what do you have to do in order to be able to walk? He goes into a wonderful swimming pool made just for dogs, doesn't he, to get stronger? Yeah. Do they have anything like that for you, or that doesn't that really wouldn't be the right thing for you? I used to. Did you? Because um, until the hydrotherapists left. Oh, hydrotherapists for boys are not the same as hydrotherapists for dogs. Do you ever think of getting into the tank with with uh, with Hachi? Um, yeah. I would. I mean, I'd see him in I there. I think. I would love to do that. I would just. Wouldn't it be fun? It looks like it'd be so much fun. And he needed those treatments because otherwise he wouldn't have been strong enough and had the balance. Is that right? I mean, without that, he might not be able to be so sturdy and so balanced as he is now. Um, yeah. And what about you? There's no more hydrotherapy for you or just not at the moment? Not at the moment. Still looking. Still looking for a good hydrotherapist. Well, one thing that your dad and stepmom seem to have been really, really clever at is reaching out to the people in England and saying, you know, Owen really needs a a really cool wheelchair. He has kind of a not-so-nice one. And everybody chipped in, didn't they? Yep. And then then the hydrotherapy for, for Hachi, I think that the hydrotherapists they sort of chipped in and, and made it affordable or made it possible. I wonder if, if we can get the word out. Of course, you're mostly being heard in America right now. But it'd be so great if there was a hydrotherapist who could jump in and say, all right, Owen, it's your turn in the tank, and you could get really strong. Is that one of the things that they've suggested? Because your muscles are, in fact, they're too strong, aren't they? You have really strong muscles. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You're like a, you're like a weightlifter, and you're only just barely eight or nine. So is that something you're supposed to do is, is swim around? Is swimming good for it? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So we, we need to get you and Hachi into the tank together. What about your other dog that was, that was another rescue dog before Hachi? Does he feel really jealous? Um, <clears throat> not really, no. Just a different personality. He's happy to just be in the background. It's Hachi who wants to be right in the center of your world, doesn't he? Yeah. So what do you think about being your age and having a book already written about you? Is that pretty surprising? Um, I wouldn't say surprising. I would say about shocked. Shocked. <laughs> That's a good one. Yes, yeah, shocked. And there you are on the cover looking incredibly dapper in your really cool Docksider shoes. And... Tell me about that watch that you wear. Oh, and that's a big, cool watch. What's that all about? Is that a special watch? Um, yeah. It is, um, right? I got it when Daddy and Colleen got married. Oh, that's your wedding watch. Oh, man, that's really cool. You also have some really cool glasses. I think they're very, very hip. Now, what if you don't wear your glasses? Do you have trouble seeing? Um, no, it, but the glasses make things not blurry. Right, me too. Me too, I have to wear glasses all the time. Mine don't look quite as cool as yours. Yours are pretty cool. So you've won this amazing award at Crufts, and you've won some other sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, they're not quite competitions, but you've gotten many prizes for your wonderful relationship what are you going to do next with Hachi? Do you have any plans to do 
something in particular, a competition, or are you going to go somewhere, or are you just going to try and not be too much of a celebrity and stay home and play in the backyard? Um, Anything on the schedule that we should know about? <clears throat> um, we do charity work. Nice. That's what I wanted to ask about. Because your dad and your mother are both in the service, and your father spends, he's in the military, right? Um, he used to. Used to. And so you raise money for some of the heroes that have been um, in, in the war. Yeah. <clears throat> and is that one yep, of the things? That, that's really pretty cool. And so you and Hachi go out and you get donations, and I guess the two of you together are a pretty great team. You must have raised a lot of money. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I guess being English, you, you can't brag too much about the money. In America, we talk about money a lot. In England, you're much more discreet. But the thing is, you do it, and that's what's really cool. I think that it would be wonderful if at your, whatever your local hospital is, if they have a, an area for children, he would make a great visitor. Would they let you come with him as a visitor, or is that too hard on you? Um... Because that would cheer up He's the other children. A therapy dog. Oh, yes, that's what I mean, a therapy dog. But it would be so great if the therapy boy could come with the dog because, you know, you guys are have inspired each other to be strong and to overcome the obstacles in front of you. But it seems to me the other kids in hospital, if they saw what you've had to go through and you've had surgeries and you have to take medication and you've been hospitalized and you've had breathing problems... Wouldn't it be so great for them to see that you can still have a wonderful life and be loved by a lot of people and have wonderful parents and and inspire other people to just be strong and stand up and figure it out, right? Yes. Well, I have to say that's what you taught me. You've taught me that that horrible things happen to people and difficult things happen to people and sometimes you just need that amazing best friend who puts your hand and his paw, although his paw's probably too big for your hand. And to, um, yeah. Yeah, and together you can just do anything. And he eats a raw food diet. That's very interesting. Oh, and, uh, and I just want to say that your dad explained that the title of the book, Hachi and Little B, Little B was a name that we were given before they decided that you wanted to say who you really were in case you wanted to stay very private. Is that right? Um, Yeah. So does anybody who's interviewing you or talking to you say, hi, little bee, and do you think, who is that? Or you don't mind? <laughs> do they sometimes accidentally call you little bee? Yeah. Okay, well, I won't do that. I'll call, you, I'll call you Owen for sure. Well, I just think you two are an amazing pair. And from that moment where you looked in each other's eyes and just knew you were there for each other, it really does give everybody an awfully good feeling to know that you have such a loving family and you're such a strong and brave boy and you're just going to find a way to walk and to be out in the world and have and feel good about yourself. You know, I think that's what Hachi gave you, right? You just feel good about Owen. Yeah. Yeah, and you should do. He's right behind me right now. Is he? Oh, I wish I could talk to him. He's so beautiful. Will you, will you give him a little bit of a hug, a snuggle, a kiss on his snout, and a rub on his ear for me? Um, 
Yeah, sure. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, yes, if you do that, it'd be great. And then people listening can all run out and buy this book, Hachi and Little B, because it you really have one of the most cool stories I've ever read. You're a wonderful kid, and I look forward. In a few years, maybe you'll come back when you're a little older, and we'll talk some more about how things have gone for you and Hachi and what you've been doing. I'd love, If you'd like to, I'd love to have you come on from time to time and just say what's going on in your life and how you and Hachi are doing. Yeah. Lovely. All right, then we will be radio pals. How does that sound? Um, awesome. Awesome. Well, excellent. Well, you know what? You are just a wonderful, wonderful person. And, and in America, it'd be very hard to find a boy your age who would be so comfortable talking to a whole bunch of people on the radio or a total stranger across across the ocean. And I, I admire you for that. You have a lot of gumption and you have a lot of lot of good energy. So... I'll send you a hug and a kiss if you don't mind me doing that. I know boys don't like hugs and kisses from older ladies. And we'll talk again soon, all right, Owen? Yeah. All right, you give my love to everyone in your whole world and the hydrotherapist for Hachi, and I hope you find your own one very soon, all righty? Okay. Take care, sweetie pie. You have a great rest of the day or of an evening. It's tea time for you. We'll be right back after this quick word. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, who is a feline-only veterinarian dedicated to creating litters to appeal to kitties and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the family. Their newest litter is Touch of the Outdoors, made with field grasses that provide environmental enrichment for indoors cats and entice them into the litter box with the natural scent of the outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in their oils. I am back with Sarah Meyer Patterson, who teaches vet techs at a program in Florida where she is an instructor. And Sarah, I'm so pleased that you reached out to me on the miracle of LinkedIn because I I would love to learn more about how somebody sets out to be a vet tech and what do you teach these people? And I somehow always thought vet techs were people that might've wanted to be a veterinarian, but decided they couldn't quite do it for one reason or another, but maybe being a vet tech is a wonderful end in and of itself. Well, sure it is. I, I like to think so. <laughs> I would, of course, um, because that's what you teach. And I think it's one of those things when, when kids are in high school or even in college, people don't really suggest to them, I, you love animals, you want to work on animals. Well, why don't you be a vet tech? I don't hear people suggesting it, but every vet tech I've ever met loves what they do. They're so knowledgeable. They feel good about what they do. The veterinarians treat them with respect. They're really partners to them. I, I would love more people to embrace it as a career, don't you think? I, I would, um, you know, and a, and a lot of it will come from, um, you know, really the title, the job title of veterinary technician is used very loosely these days. Um, and as an educator and as a veteran um, veterinary technician, licensed veterinary technician, um, I've come across that many times. Um you know, just because somebody works in an animal hospital um, doesn't necessarily mean they are a technician. Um, in reality, a, a veterinary technician is a graduate of a two uh, or a four-year program. Wow. ADMA. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. 
from an AVMA, which is American Veterinary Medical Association accredited school. Um, they, this association, the AVMA, accredits veterinary and technician schools um, right. to ensure curriculum, educators, and materials and facilities meet standards uh, for producing competent graduates. That's, um, so, that's, that's a really interesting point, Sarah, because if you think about a hospital for humans, you have nurses who are RPLNs. They're, they're really nurses that have gone to a two, four, or six-year program. And then you have just aides, hospital aides, people who are there that are kind of like cleaning up or doing kind of more like housekeeping chores. And in a vet hospital, everyone sometimes is, is referred to as a vet tech when they really don't all have the skills you're talking about. So it is important to know the difference as a pet owner, right? I agree totally. Um, you know, I like to assimilate it to if you walk into a human hospital, um, you assume that everyone there has had some type of formal nursing training, but in actuality, um, there are there are nurses, there are aides, there are yes. receptionists, and the same is true in a veterinary hospital. Um, not all veterinary hospitals employ licensed technicians. We're we're making it. You know, we're we're. Leaps and bounds, um, we'd like to see that um, every hospital in the United States would have um, at least one licensed technician. Um, I think we owe it to our patients. And also, I imagine you'd like people to differentiate between the care they're receiving or the bill they're paying, because if a licensed veterinary technician who has all this training and these skills and has had to pass a test and get uh, you know, that, that credit if they're going to be giving an injection or they're going to be doing a, a, an exam before or after the vet herself, you want to know that person has not just learned by watching, but they've actually learned by being trained and understanding what they're doing. Correct. You know, and a lot of times, um, you know, one of the, the job duties, um, you know, I like to say that, you know, technicians, we wear a lot of hats. You know, we are anesthetists. We are radiology technicians. We're pharmacy right. technicians. You know, we're medical nurses, surgical nurses. We wear a lot of hats. You know, we uh, do a lot of grief counseling for our clients. Right. Um, That's so, a really good point. So the, the, are there some vet hospitals that do surgery and they don't have an accredited vet tech as the, the right-hand person? So that's dangerous, and most people don't realize the difference, whereas a vet tech has had to do the same level of serious schooling as a veterinarian herself in order to know how to handle whatever she, her, is her part in the surgery or in the procedure, as opposed to just following orders, hold this, press here, right? Well, and I think that a lot of times, and, and you know, I think of myself, I was a client at one time myself, client as in a uh, pet guardian. Right. Um, I don't like to use the word ownership. I say guardianship. Okay. Um, as, as a pet guardian, I trust my veterinarian, and I assume that that person um, has formally educated um, folks working for him or her uh, who have had anesthetic training um, and formal education. So... I think sometimes ignorance is bliss. Because um, right. it's an assumption, as they say, but assumptions, an assumption makes an ass of you and me if you assume something. Because those assumptions, correct. not everyone's making the same assumption. It, just give us an idea of, the. would there be a difference in what your salary would be if you were a licensed vet tech versus just a person working in a veterinary hospital wearing the same scrubs? 
Um, it really depends on the um, practice manager or the owner of the practice, how they value their staff. Right. Um, usually a more progressive hospital will employ licensed veterinary technicians um, because they care about the safety of their pets. Now, I will say, give this, this disclaimer, um, just because a hospital does not have licensed veterinary technicians, that does not mean you should stop going there. They don't, you know, they're not safe. Right, right. Don't, please don't misconstrue that because I think you know when you go into a hospital, you you know whether or not you can trust that that facility. You know, if you are treated well when you walk in the door, if the staff is friendly and they seem knowledgeable, um, they answer your questions, um, your pet seems very well cared for, then by all means, continue continue going there. Well, what about saying or asking? I mean, is it, is it out of, doesn't seem to me it would be out of line to say, um, or are you a licensed veterinary technician, Sarah? Well, you know, as a, as a licensed technician myself, um, I take great pride in that fact. Um, I've been licensed for 12 years. I've been in the veterinary uh, medical industry for 18. Um, prior to attending veterinary technician school, um, I called myself a technician, but that was because I worked somewhere that also referred to me as a technician. That's now, once right. I went through once I went through school, I realized, oh my gosh, how much I how much I did not know yes. prior to school. Yes. Um, and I appreciated and was very proud of the fact of what I had accomplished. And of course, more so once I became licensed, um, I've been licensed in three states and um, I wear my name tag with my credentials very proudly. Um, when I talk to clients, if I'm going over discharge, if I'm admitting a patient, anytime that I'm talking to a client, I have that name tag on with my credentials. But, um, currently in Florida, I'm a CBT, a certified veterinary technician. Um, I see clients look at my name badge, and some will ask, what does yes. that mean? Yes. And I'm always more than happy to explain to them who I am and what I do. So, so it's not out of line to ask, do you have licensed technicians that work here? Um, don't be surprised if they say no. Um you and know, maybe that they live own. in, it's, it's possible that they are located somewhere where there, there is not a pool of licensed veterinary technicians that they could draw from. Or and alternately, maybe there, maybe there's no school nearby that, that someone who'd like to become a licensed vet tech and is employed could go to at night even or something because there's nothing nearby. How many, how many schools are there that are AVMA credited to, to give a vet tech license? Um, there's over 70 um, colleges. Most of these colleges, most, the majority of them that are AVMA accredited um, are campus, um, you know, actually on-site campus. Um, and then you will do your clinicals usually at a, at a local animal hospital, veterinary hospital that's approved. But there also are accredited, AVMA accredited programs that are distance learning programs. Oh, really? Um, that's Yes, ma'am. It's not to say that you do everything online and then you get your degree because you have to, along with attending um, these distance learning courses, you have to work at an animal hospital um, that's willing to take you on and mentor you. So you have to have a mentor that can check off on your skills. 
But that's um, that's actually a great solution to the very problem that I just mentioned. And it's it's but, not like getting a vet tech license on the back of a matchbook. Like sometimes it says you can get a law degree on the back of a matchbook. We always worry about those lawyers, right? But in this case, but, that mm-hmm. distance learning, if it's if it's backed up with practical on the ground experience by a veterinarian who really has taken you on in a way as an apprentice is the best That's of correct. all possible worlds. So this two to four year program, is it in addition to an undergraduate degree in college or would it be instead of, which could you go right from high school? It depends. Um, well, you'll have to have, it depends on the program and each program is a little different in what they require uh, for prerequisites prior to admission to a program. Um, each program is just a little different, so okay. you would want to check into that. Um, my, I'll give you an example myself. I okay. actually was a full-time college student prior to technician school, um, started working at a veterinary hospital, and really I just I was a journalism major, and I thought, well, I'll just do this job while I'm in I'll school. I'll be darned. And um, figured out real quick that, I had a knack for it, and I loved it. I loved the nursing aspect of veterinary medicine. Um, And so I had a wonderful veterinarian that said, why don't you either apply for vet school or technician school? And we talked about, you know, options, pros and cons of either one, and I really loved the nursing aspect, so I chose um, veterinary technology. Um, So I already had a lot of my prerequisites completed prior to applying to technician school. Because I'm so always trying, really I'm, I'm trying to school. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how to sort of um, steer people that are young-ish people. Of course, someone could start at 40. There's no law against that. I know all kinds of people have actually, not all kinds, but some have gone to law school and medical school even when they were in oh, their sure. 30s. Career change or just took them a long time to figure out what really mattered to them. But it would be great to, to try and inspire Maybe somebody that doesn't want the pressure of vet school because vet school is longer and tougher and much more expensive. Maybe they don't want the ultimate pressure and burden and responsibility of being the vet where the buck stops here. Being that nurse person really is is part of a team effort. And for a lot of personalities, that's much more appealing and feels like you're part of a whole team working for an animal instead of being the vet where you're supposed to have the answers and come up with the solutions. And for some people that might feel too high pressure, but they'd love to still be in the field. And and I love when you stress the word nursing because we don't think of a veterinary technologist as being a nurse, but they really are a nurse and they do put their hands on the person and the dog to, to keep them calm and to show them, you know, care and consideration. It's, it's part of the personal part of a vet visit is often what happens with your vet tech, right? Well, and and what happens during that experience, I like to say it's client perception, how they, uh, it's an emotional experience, how they feel during and after that visit. Um, If you treat someone very well with respect, you explain things very well, um, and you treat their animal, their pet very well, they will want to come back. Yes. You know, from the minute they walk in the door, that's our job. Yes, our main focus is that pet. But if you focus only on the pet and not on the human aspect, you really are lacking and you may not get that client back. So It's really true. And, and one thing I've found with the vet techs at, at the, the 
vet clinic where I go, which has four veterinarians and has something like a dozen vet techs. Now, are they all accredited? Now I'm wondering, but certainly some of them are. And they are so professional and so efficient and kind and caring. And they'll ask you, do you have any questions? Do you have any issues you want to talk about? Sometimes you feel a little rushed with the vet. You don't want to bother the vet with something that might seem kind of trivial. Or even in my case, something has bothered you about previous things that have happened at the vet, like you wish that a test had been done or you're sorry that too many vaccines were given. And a good vet tech lets you vent those feelings and feel like you're being heard. I think one of the one of the important things in medical care, whether it's for humans or animals, is we need to feel heard and seen. And I think that the vet tech is the one who provides that sense of really listening to the human patient, as well as being warm and friendly to the dog or the cat or the canary, if it's a canary. So I think That's that it, it forms a really important bridge to sort of make fee- people feel not necessarily empowered, but certainly heard and cared about because a vet has to see four people an hour, four customers an hour to keep the lights on. And the vet techs never make you feel rushed like that. You know, you always feel you have extra time with them. So those are good vet techs. That's what you're trying to teach and and turn out where you are, right? That's correct. So what is the best way for someone who's curious to look into um, becoming a veterinary technologist, what is the what is the best place online to go and look for the 70 colleges and find one near them? Uh, the best place and uh, that I have found and I refer my students to a lot to find facts um, is NAVTA, which is the National Association of Veterinary Technicians of America. Okay. Um, so it's N-A-V-T-A. Dot O-R-G. Um, uh, oh, gosh. Well, I'll check. Because it's yeah. usually when it's when it's when it's uh you know something to do with teaching it's usually org. That's if you great. Type in NAVTA, it will pop It'll up. It'll pop up um, on its own. Terrific. It sure will. And pretty much every question that you would have will be answered, um, including career options. You know, you don't just have to work in a in a veterinary hospital. You know. Twelve years ago, I thought I would work. Um, I actually was in academia. I worked at a veterinary college. Um, you know helping to turn out veterinarians and um, I thought I would always be in that type of a setting and I found myself um, back in small animal practice and now I'm back in academia. Uh, You know, there's just so many options with this degree. Um, I always say, you know, education opens a lot of doors. Yes. Um, And, you know, I'll, you, can I give you an example of, of kind of the difference? Well, we unfortunately we've run out of time, Sarah. Unfortunately, okay. we've run right out of time. But definitely going to NAVTA is a great way for people to look into it more. And I'm sorry we can't hear the example, but I really love the example you're setting for so many people as a veterinary technologist and a teacher yourself. You've obviously held a high bar and you have a lot of pride in what you're doing. And I'm sure you're passing that on to the next generation. We're all going to ask at our own vet, are you licensed vet tech? Just asking, because if you aren't, maybe you want to get licensed. Sarah, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us and and your caring about what you do for a living. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you all for listening. Hug your kitties. Kiss your pooches. Just to mix things up a little. And we will talk again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.